If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. All right. Uh, well, we hadn't planned this, but uh, good morning, Chad. Uh, I was woken from my sleep at 6.30 by a siren like a lot of people in Korea were. Were you already up? Yeah, I was at the gym on the treadmill, and then uh, I actually got a phone call from my wife who said alert sirens were ringing in the neighborhood, and our right. daughter was awake freaking out about the noises. And then a presidential text message alert started rolling in, even though I have those disabled. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that there are different levels of presidential alert or, or uh, warning systems sent to the phone. And some you can turn off, but the top level, it seems you cannot. And so we uh, we all got a message all around Korea to prepare to evacuate. Yeah, yeah. Dubbed a wartime alert. Yes. And, Did you get your uh, dugout bag? No, but my wife did ask me what to uh, to do, and I actually thought back to our seminar on preparing yeah. for risk last last year, and I just said, uh, get as much cash together as you can, and to with uh, our daughter. Wow! And then about what I don't know, fifteen minutes later. Oh, go on. To be honest, I, it was it was even pretty obvious early on this morning that this was the satellite launch. I did tell her right away this is this is very likely a satellite launch because we knew North Korea announced that it would be from May 31st to June mm. 10th. Today's May 31st. We've been seeing all the progress at yep. the Sohei uh, launch facility. There was open source maps posted earlier this week by uh, specialists in this field showing the trajectory. It was going to follow the exact trajectory of the February 2016 launch over the West Sea. The only thing I could think of when I got that alert, though, was perhaps something had gone badly wrong. And mm. that was why we were getting the alert. But it seems that was not the case. Yeah, you mean, so you were thinking perhaps space debris could be falling from the uh, from the satellite launch. Or some something, you know, not necessarily debris, but the, the yeah. rocket had swerved well off course and was actually headed towards Seoul. Like, something like that would make sense for triggering an alert of this scale, but... Right. As we found out on the second message, they had the South Korean authorities had made a pretty major blunder in issuing those alerts, and there was a, a sort of a withdrawal of the alert. Yes, uh, going back to the trajectory, where where is Seoul in relation to that trajectory? Far to the east. The so Sohei, if you can just imagine a, a vertical line down from Sohei. Sohei is near, relatively near to Dandong in uh, on the China. North Korea border, ah. um, and that has the benefit in North Korea of being one of the most westerly locations on the map, which means there's a hell of a lot of ocean straight to the south, and and not much chance of going over South Korean territory. Right. So Seoul is pretty far off. I mean, 
the way one observer put it, I think it was, I forget who it was on Twitter, was that this would be similar to Japan issuing alerts when South Korea conducts its own uh, satellite launches, which of course South Korea did last week. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the distances are, are, are sort of relatively similar and the probability of the satellites falling down over Japan or South Korea are quite extremely low indeed. But I understand that Japan did issue a, a warning this morning, at least for people in Okinawa to, uh, uh, to possibly evacuate. <laughs> Yeah, but they didn't when South Korea launched a satellite last ah. uh, week. And what, uh, like I said, unfortunately, I forget who pointed this out, but I think the point they were trying to make was that the probability of a South Korean satellite going uh, wrong and landing on Japanese territory is about the same as a North Korean satellite launch going wrong and landing on Japan or South Korea. Right. So what do you think will be the, uh, the fallout, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, from this uh uh erroneous um prepare to evacuate message from the city of seoul well let's see i i hope you know the, there's always unintended consequences from alerts like this and yeah. um i just hope no one has uh nothing bad has happened to anyone as a result of it right uh and we'll i guess we'll be expecting some kind of a message from north korea later on today about whether or not the satellite got into orbit and is functional yeah based on precedent in 2016 february when they did their last satellite launch Ri Chung, he was on state television uh, around 11, 11.30 a.m. that morning. Right. Announcing the news of the successful launch. So I suspect we will see something similar. Okay. Well, by the time this podcast comes out later on today, we'll uh, certainly know one way or the other. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Chad. Thanks, Jacko. Welcome to the NK News Podcast. This is recorded on Tuesday, the 30th of May, and I'm here with Chad, and we're doing a bit of a new uh, a format revamp here of the podcast. Uh, Chad, uh, share with the, the listeners your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, uh, so far the podcast has uh, mainly been long-form interviews, and once a month approximately we get together for a roundtable mm -hmm. uh, conversation with journalists and analysts who have worked on various stories. And on, on some occasions, we do dive in straight away when there's a big news event. For example, a massive you know, exchange of fire or an ICBM launch back when people cared about ICBM launches. Yeah. But yeah, we thought it would be good to inject a bit more current affairs into each episode so that it's not just an interview with someone who you may or may not be interested to hear about, mm -hmm. but also offer you a, a, a means to just keep up to date with what's going on in North Korea while you drive to work or come home from uh, the gym or whatever it may be. And so um, what we wanted to start doing from today onwards is just talk for 10, 15 minutes at the start of each podcast yep. about what's going on and actually also to have a bit of a back and forth, like hear what Jacko thinks as well about some of these things as uh, someone who's been watching the peninsula for a very long time. Oh, I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> you do, Jacko. I've got to stay neutral. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, so today we're doing our first little uh, bit, talking for 20 to 15 to 20 minutes or so about what, are the, what have been the big stories in the last week. Now, I know there's been quite a bit of talk about whether North Korean athletes would be going outside North Korea to enter some sports. Uh, there is the Asia Games in Beijing this year, and there's some kind of a, a football or soccer 
thing happening in the Netherlands? Yeah, so this is um, a really, really interesting development. And basically, the Netherlands were, uh, the North Koreans accused the Netherlands yesterday of rejecting visas for a women's military-related football tournament. Ah, so it's a military football team. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting on the one hand that the Netherlands Foreign Ministry allegedly rejected these visas given, mm. you know, years ago, many years ago, I worked for the UN Office for Sports and Development and Peace. And the whole ethos of that UN division was use sport as a tool for diplomacy and peace building. And right. that's not really compatible with uh, visa rejections and so on. Mm -hmm. So the North Koreans were angry about that. But the thing that's more interesting about it is it does suggest it's the first time the North Koreans have come out yeah. And said publicly, given evidence that they are actually putting feelers out there to take part in sporting events. And as you know, yep. that would be meaningful because no one has left North Korea. No, that's North Korean for three, four years now. Right. Well, yeah, since, uh, since January 2020. So, uh, yeah, almost three and a half years. Um, there's, it's been an almost completely closed door policy uh, in North Korea. So if they are interested in sending athletes out to the military football championships in the Netherlands or the Asia Games later on this year in Beijing, that would be a big move, yeah. Yeah, and it's not just that. There's, uh, we did a story the other day about weightlifting's governing body clearing mm. the way for 14 North Korean athletes to go to a qualifying event for the Paris 2024 Olympics in ah. Cuba, actually, yeah. between June 8th and 18th. An old friend of North Korea, Cuba. Yep. And then, as you know, uh, we talked about this a bit some weeks ago. There was that Chinese travel agency also saying mid-June is when travel would restart. Our new colleague, Anton, who, for listeners who are unaware, he's uh, replacing Ethan Jewell, who mm. was doing our ship tracking and, and maritime stuff. He um, actually noticed the Air Corio website earlier in the week had actually published schedules on its website about demonstrating new flight itineraries but are they all to, to chinese cities yeah i think it was maybe beijing shenyang there may have been vladivostok but interestingly mm. he, he made the effort to call yeah air choreo in beijing and, and pyongyang and they mm -hmm. both denied any sign of flights resuming and then after that the schedules were deleted from the air choreo website so well, that's unusual huh uh, well we've certainly got something interesting to talk about with our uh, friends at the dutch embassy next time we meet them here in seoul about whether they know anything about this uh, this visa thing well i think i've read in the story uh, written by our colleague ifan bremer that the north koreans were invited to apply for a visa at the seoul office of the, uh, the netherlands yeah, which is technically right. It manages both North and South Korea, right? Yeah. yeah. But you know, technically right, but feasibly impossible. Yeah, unless some things changed. But yeah, that that would be... Well, it's, it's interesting if, that the Netherlands may have rejected it, but at the same time... If the if it's a military football tournament, having North Korean military officials in, how would the Dutch mm. citizens respond to that? Do you think you're a Dutch guy? Yes. Well, uh, look, I don't think that Dutch people have a, a very look. I could be wrong here. I'm a, bit, a bit out of touch. I've been out for a few years, but I don't think they have a very strong uh, opinion either way. About I mean, you know, sports is sports, right? So, uh, what I think a lot of people uh, might be interested in is to see how the North Korean generals set off the metal detectors with all their medals. <laughs> The metal detector with their medals on their uh, on their chest going through at the airport, but otherwise, I think uh, people will probably say, "Well, you know, it's sports, so you've got to give them a pass for that." Yeah, it may have been something to do with UN sanctions as well, because I know the North Korean People's Armed Forces are pretty 
covered up in sanctions also from right. the eu and united states unilateral and maybe there was concerns over that but mm. but then you know they could release a statement right if they have a concern about that yeah and i mean some of the people that we spoke to in the story um some of the pundits sokil park from liberty in north korea daniel pinkston from troy university both lamented that this is a very rare opportunity for North Koreans to go to a developed nation and they've been in isolation for four years. Like, really, it's, yeah. it's sad that the Dutch government has rejected that. Then. It reminds me about, about more than 10 years ago, maybe between 10 and 15 years ago, there was an art exhibition in Australia that, was, uh, that included some works of art by North Korean artists and the artists had been invited to come to Australia to be there at the exhibition. Uh, but the Australian Foreign Ministry also didn't give visas for that too. They had a, a policy of, uh, of no North Koreans would come. I mean, I, I don't know what the exact policy was, but I'm going to uh, crudely summarize it and say uh, no engagement, no visits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some some nations take that approach, but I think the European Union, though, is critical engagement. That's meant to be the pan-EU policy, right? right? Yeah. Hmm. Well, so, maybe there'll be some uh, some words from Brussels about that. That's interesting. Yeah, but then I also think about I remember when uh, Kim Jong-nam, Kim Jong-un's brother, was assassinated and Free Joseon saved his son. Mm, Kim Han-sol. Kim Han-sol. Yeah. There was a lot of rumor about the former Dutch ambassador to Seoul's involvement in all of that. And I wonder if there was any, maybe there's any blowback from that that mm. could be to do with this. Although I, I seem to recall that there was a, a subsequent visit to the DPRK uh, by that ambassador. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So. After the, the, I mean, it, a year or so or more after the uh, the incident. So. Yeah. So maybe they don't Perhaps care. Perhaps it was papered over. Yeah. But anyway, the, besides all those data points about interest in overseas sports tournaments, the on the flip side, the strange thing is that last week the Russian ambassador mm. did an interview and said that the Russian Federation will be sending home even more diplomats in in the coming days, which. You know, the Cuban ambassador left recently, and ah. you'd think that those embassies who have held on this long, if there was real confidence about the border reopening, why would they be unilaterally sending people back? Mm. Particularly if they're expecting it to open as early as mid-June, as, as that uh, unnamed Chinese travel agency was. Yeah, and what the Russian ambassador said actually was in stark contrast to these data points about interest in going overseas yeah. he said from his conversations with north korean health authorities that they're now concerned about monkeypox ultra deadly new variants of covid19 and when you read what he said it mm. really sounds like what some of the pessimists around us about border reopening have been saying that 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 the North Koreans may actually cling on to this as a means to keep foreigners out for a very, very long time indeed. But then if we juxtapose that with the arrival of a new People's Republic of China ambassador and, and his uh, entourage or, or retinue of staff, I um, mean, there was more than just one person coming in, and that, that's quite a stark contrast, isn't it? But yesterday, he, the Chinese Foreign Ministry published a statement from him which thanked his North Korean uh, partners for the special case entry, which, yeah, does make you think it might have really just been a one-off but mm. I don't interesting know. that russia's not getting special treatment especially in these times it's interesting and frankly embarrassing i think for moscow mm. Um, mm. i think it really shows right if even north korea is, is okay with the embassy almost being completely shuttered uh, in pyongyang that's not a good look for moscow no it's not so i i, I mean zooming out i'm planning to write about this later today but my initial impression is that basically what we might be seeing is evidence of 
North Korean ministries, departments, sports organizations being given the the all clear to start putting feelers out mm-hmm. for foreign partic- participation in foreign events, but probably the central government has made no mm. no decision and and it makes me wonder the diplomats who are remaining in Pyongyang, not many, no. who are speaking to the foreign ministry, how well informed will the foreign ministry be about border reopening issues? Probably not super informed. So we might just be seeing noise of a potential interest in reopening or some form of uh, allowing North Koreans out at least initially, but hard to know what to make of it beyond that. All right, we've got time for one more story. So what else uh, is, has been on your radar this week? Well, talking about radars mm. um, and intelligence, it's of course North Korea's satellite launch, right? Long delayed, right? Because didn't they say, wasn't they never gave a date, but they said by the end of April, didn't they originally? They said, yeah, preparing to launch by the end of April. And yeah. then we've seen Kim Jong-un tour a facility where he's like inspected the satellite that mm. would be going up. And now the, the Jap- Japanese media, I think a few days ago, noticed that the International Maritime Organization, IMO, had been informed by North Korea, allegedly, that the satellite launch will go ahead within a window of time from, I think, from tomorrow to, yeah, from tomorrow mm. to mid-June, basically, June 11th. So, yeah, the, uh, the, the window of time has been announced, which is North Korea does this with satellite launches. Uh, it doesn't do it with missile launches. Ah. But basically, this this will be a multi-stage uh, rocket that will have debris that will right. potentially fall down in various parts of the, the Pacific, Pacific going yeah. south from the peninsula. What I found interesting is, uh, and I kind of un- understand why they have to do it, but South Korea condemning, warning North Korea not to go ahead mm. with it, talking of consequences and... You just, I mean, if you were an alien landing on planet Earth, looking at what's going on recently in South Korea, massive military drills called annihilation exercises, Mm. which are ongoing right now, its own satellite launch. So it's a bit of a double standard. It's a a big double standard to say to North Korea can't. Obviously, there are UN sanctions Mm -hmm. at play, which uh, technically restrict it from um, activities related to ballistic missile launches. But... I didn't really understand the point of South Korea's warnings on this because obviously North Korea is going to ignore them. And especially especially in context of ongoing major exercises and South Korea's own successful satellite launch in, in the last week. Yeah. Now, do you know whether the South Koreans, well, I mean, there were multiple satellites, I think, weren't there in that particular launch. But do you know if they're military reconnaissance satellites or communications or anything else? I would need to check, but mm. I vaguely remember there being a South Korean uh, satellite put into orbit some years ago that was specifically for imaging mm-hmm. um, of the peninsula. I would need to check, but... Right, because now North Korea, I mean, this is exactly what North Korea says it's doing, right? It wants a military recon satellite up there. Yeah, and, and one of our colleagues, Ankit Panda, has mm-hmm. interestingly pointed out that a, a North Korean, if it's a working military reconnaissance satellite, it would actually have a potentially stabilizing effect in the Hmm. event of crisis and tensions on the peninsula because North Korea would have its own independent means to see if the US and ROC are really building up to commence an invasion. And that would actually be good when times are tough and there is confusion and and miscommunication between the two Koreas. So arguably it, it could be a good thing. But on the flip side, 
if you are of the thinking that North Korea's ultimate goal is forced unification of the peninsula, mm -hmm. maybe it could also be a bad thing because it could yeah. help them find a, a weak spot. Or And it also assumes that North Korea, you know, when it makes those accusations that, um, oh, there's a military buildup, we're under threat, they're going to attack us, that it does so in good faith rather than as a, as a, as a leveraging tool or, uh, or for public messaging internally. Yeah, because if the satellite shows that what's going on is just routine, that it, it would be harder for them to say like, this is a build-up for an invasion. But they probably would say it anyway, I would well, imagine. I mean, yeah, exactly. To, the, to their internal audience, there's very few people are going to have access to that satellite imagery, so most of the right. people won't. Right, yeah. I can imagine them putting satellite imagery out publicly in, in the future as well, mm. which could be interesting to see. Let's see. Well, yeah, let's keep an eye on that. Anything else that you're expecting this week or in the next week or two? Maybe some reaction from Kim Yo-jong or someone about the ongoing, uh, these annihilation drills that right. the US and Iraq are doing. I mean, it's been interesting, right? US and South Korea doing massive exercises mm. this year, unprecedented in many ways in, in both scale and magnification through the public relations media attention that they've deliberately drawn. But North Korea has been quite quiet. It has been quite quiet. Yeah, sometimes it's noisier than you expected it to be, and sometimes it's quieter than you expected it to be. Yeah. So I'm just who knows. I mean, some people have said that they they may be quiet because they've just they don't have enough stock of missiles to do these massive shows of force every single time. Or yeah. But you know, often the quiet comes before the storm in North Korea. And maybe they've just uh, you know they're they're fans of the kings of convenience, and they agree that quiet is the new loud. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for that chat. And to our listeners, stick around because we're going to have an interview with Daphne Zur about a North Korean translation of Anne Frank's diary and the significance of that. Thanks for Looking listening. Looking forward to it. Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, Journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment, Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordial Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack Ozwetsuk and Gergovacci of Cordial Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, co the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. Today it is Wednesday, May 25th, 2023. And I'm joined in the NK News studio by Professor Daphne Zur to talk about North Korea's translation of Anne Frank, as well as North Korea's children's literature and science fiction. Now, to introduce my guest today, Daphne Zur is an associate professor in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at Stanford University. She teaches courses on Korean literature, cinema, and popular culture. 
You can find her on Twitter at Daphne Zor, and we'll share a link to that in the show notes. Welcome on the show, Daphne. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, and it's a real honor to be on the show. Thank you. And we have been talking for a long time about getting you on. <laughs> it's, it's finally happened. Yes. Uh, so tell us how you got into North Korean literature. So, uh, let's see, go back to 2007, I was, uh, could say sort of in the middle or the kind of more edging towards the middle of my PhD program. I had finished all my my exams and I was getting ready to write a dissertation and I had sort of settled on this uh, topic of children's literature. I was a a mom of young uh, children. My son was, uh, my older son was, uh, born when I was just starting the program, uh, my younger son as well, when I was uh, just um, in the middle of my studies. And I was reading to them every night the books that I uh, grew up with. My parents kept all of my children's books. And so uh, I got to the topic of children's literature in Korea just out of the curiosity of what it was that uh, Koreans might have read, uh, not what they were reading now, that um, I was interested in that as well, but where did it all start? Mm. Where did children's literature begin in Korea? So that got me on this journey of uh, exploring children's literature in Korea in the colonial period. So that was, uh, it was sort of on on that track. And then so that's sort of mm. a Japanese-influenced Korean literature. Yes, I mean, I, I wouldn't quite put it that way, it would be more that sort of children's literature in colonial Korea begins really kind of at the early 20th century, and it is indeed established by Korean writers and educators who were uh, studying, some of them in Korea, most of them were were studying in Japan. They were inspired, uh, greatly influenced by Mm -hmm. Japanese children's culture and the whole sort of industry and uh, and movement of uh, really celebrating childhood uh, Mm. starting in the late Meiji. And so uh, and so they came back to Korea and th- thought, okay, we need to have our own uh, culture for, for children. So that's the subject of my book, Figuring Korean Futures, right. uh, Children's uh, Literature in Korea, uh, Modern Korea. But so, so I was sort of on, you know, thinking about you know, colonial, the colonial area and the post-war area and uh, you know, trying to kind of track how children's literature had emerged, what made it, um, what made children visible uh, to begin with, why were people writing for children, how it was, how did politics come, or or different political views come into shaping the different writers. Mm. And then in, I think it was 2006 or so, 2007, you know, I was a a graduate student at the University of British Columbia, and an email uh, popped up on the Korean Studies listserv advertising a uh, scholarship, you know, funded trip to the Library of Congress Mm. in uh, Washington, D.C. to visit the Asian Reading Room. Uh, So I was always on the lookout for different travel opportunities and uh, clicked on it and looked at the Asian reading room and there were, it wasn't, uh, the the digitized materials weren't, weren't very, you know, available very widely, but I was kind of looking up some titles and I, I just put in Adung Munak were the, the, the keyword, the children's literature, put, uh, put in that keyword and uh, started looking at the, uh, at the different entries that popped up and lo and behold, there was a book that I said, oh, Adong Munas, I thought, okay, children's literature, published 1952, 53. And the publisher is 
was listed, the, pu- the publishing location was listed as Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. And so I had never even, it had never occurred to me that there was Children's of North Korea. Of course there is. You know, it right. never occurred to me that there was something going back to the late 40s, early 50s during the Korean War. Of course there was. And so I uh, got on a plane, went to D.C., and uh, entered the Library of Congress. They brought out all of these materials from their storage, and it opened my eyes to this entire world. Yeah. You're, uh, yeah, sort of... Uh, Serendipitous, stumbling over it almost it mirrors my experience completely in 2010 when I was uh, on a tourism trip to Pyongyang and they took us to the Kim Il-sung Square International Bookstore. They have a lot of stuff there for tourists, but I wanted something that wasn't you know, prepared for tourists especially. So I asked them, you know, have you got any... I, I think I, I, can't, I couldn't have used the word manhwa check because I don't use that word so much in North Korean, but I asked for a book that, that shows the true evil nature of the American imperialist bastards and uh, they went to the back and came back with three graphic novels and said, here you go, you need these. And I, I thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is cool. They've got these comic books in North Korea. And that's what started my, uh, my journey into, uh, into looking at that area. So since you uh, discovered the Adong Munok, you've published articles on North Korean science fiction, the Korean War in North and South Korean literature. Uh, and over a decade ago, you had a chapter in one of my favorite books about North Korea, Exploring North Korean Arts. It's a paperback uh, by uh, Rudiger Frank Interalia. And your chapter was The Korean War in Children's Picture Books in the DPRK, which I, of course, cited uh, that chapter in my MA thesis about North Korean graphic novels. So uh, what do you remember about those early explorations of North Koreans' children's literature and the Korean War in North Korean's children's picture books. What stood out to you? Yeah, so, you know, I just want to say one thing, piggybacking on on your previous comment, which is, you know, with the advent of internet and this kind of digitization and the kind of very targeted searches that we can do, Mm. it's uh, a lot harder to have these sort of happy accidents. And so, uh, you know, I'm reminded of... uh, Actually, so this ties into your question. Um, I... Well, I was interested in the Korean War uh, already also in my master's thesis. My master's thesis at uh, the University of British Columbia, where I did my MA and my PhD, was looking at the Korean literature about the Vietnam War that Mm. was a way for writers to recall the Korean War is very uh, complicated, very interesting body of work. And so I, I you know, and, and I'm also, you know, we haven't talked so much about this, but I was uh, raised in Israel. I'm, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, affinity, let's say, between uh, the kind of the, the way in which, uh, you know, Israel emerged and a lot of very interesting similarities mm-hmm. and differences, of course, too, to explore between Israel and Korea. But, you know, I was interested in war and, uh, re- and, and memory. And so I was kind of did this uh, ongoing project of trying to see how Koreans remembered the Korean War, both in first I started in the Vietnam uh, War literature, but then I was really interested in how they were doing that uh, for young people. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, sort of that um, that interest. I think, you know, early on, I was quite struck by the very strong graphic imagery of decimated bodies yeah. and explosions and, you know, these kind of very grotesque features of the, you know, of, of, of the, the American characters. Are but these in the, in the pictures or in the textual descriptions? In the pictures, okay. yeah, yeah. So the pictures are quite quite graphic. I mean, I think now probably I would um, if I would pro- probably write something a little bit different and, you know, maybe not make so much of it just because, you know, perhaps, I, you know, my, my sensibilities have changed a little bit. Um, You've but become numbed. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, I, I think I'm just always really careful. I don't want to sensationalize or over, you mm-hmm. know, exoticize or, you know, make really make something more I, you know, I think my, my approach has just changed mm. a little bit uh, you know with regard to North Korea I mean yeah so I think you know the, the media does enough of that and I you know I'm trying right. to understand uh, the, the 
the cultures in which uh, these uh, these materials emerge. So that was sort of my my early explorations of uh, the Korean War in North Korean materials. The topic of today's I know that we're going to get to it, yes. uh, but but the other materials that I've since started to explore in North Korea, both the science fiction uh, articles that I've written and also this uh, latest article that just came out on Anne Frank, those were accidents. I was looking for Korean War materials and my eye drifted down the page, you know, tried to scan the table of contents and all of a sudden I found something that I wasn't yeah. expecting. That's and so, you know, it's always good, you know, as much as we love doing our internet searches and finding exactly what we need, it's always good to be able to go to a physical library yeah. and look through physical books and just, you know, have an agenda, but also be open to seeing kind of to the left and to the right of what it is that we're looking for. Right. As you hinted at in 2014, you published an article in the Journal of Asian Studies called Let's Go to the Moon, Science Fiction in the North Korean Children's Magazine, Adong Munhak which you were referring to just before in the Library of Congress, from 1956 to 65. Tell us a little bit, just a, a brief glimpse at North Korean sci-fi. What makes it interesting? Well, to me, uh, you know, again, I, I think I come at this, uh, I came at this at the time with a, you know, a bit of a sort of really an open mind. I was uh, fascinated by uh, the existence of science fiction. Of course, there was science fiction, right? I mean, there's a very strong also Soviet influence, yeah. right, in the, in the 1950s. And uh, so I was really just interested in understanding if science fiction is a way to which, uh, a way through which to bring together uh, these sort of utopian image, right, images, imagination of the future and the kind of, um, you know, and technology and science with kind of political or ideological uh, agenda. I wanted to see what it was that North Korea did that was really unique and special. So it was really just, uh, it was such a fun exploration. I found uh, there's this one writer uh, who I focus on in particular in this article, uh, Kim Dong-sup, I think was his name. Mm -hmm. And he uh, wrote these two novellas. Uh, he had some other small pieces, but these two novellas in particular really caught my eye. And I had so much fun. I actually translated one of the two. I was hoping to translate the second. It hasn't uh, been published yet, but my students get to read it because it's not published. Uh, nice. But uh, yeah, let's. Uh, so let's go to the moon. And the other one was the uh, bringing the bottom of the ocean uh, sort of uh, up to, uh, you know, floating it up to the top. And what problem would that solve? Uh, oh, well, uh, you would have a lot more land, a lot more. Ah, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, this so is the sort of a, uh, a Dutch version, uh, sort of or a Korean version of Dutch land reclamation from the sea, I suppose. Land reclamation from the right. sea, exactly. Because really, do we need our oceans? Uh, they're just salt and, uh, you know, they just take up a lot of space. Yeah. I'd so like to uh, say a special hello to Bernard Seliger if you're out there trying to protect the, uh, the unsullied wetlands that remain in the North Korea's coast. Hello, Bernard. Yes, hello, and I, I'm a big fan of your work, and I actually have an article about the DMZ that mm. I'm working on right now, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about as well. But so let's see, what can I say about these two uh, novellas? I mean, my, my article explores this sort of what happens to realism. Realism is a really important mode of writing in colonial Korea, sort of a reaction against the what was seen as more decadent modernist trends, kind of decadent bourgeois trends. And uh, writers became very enamored with this idea of writing the real and describing in the most straightforward terms the real exploitation and and suffering that Koreans were going through mm -hmm. uh, under under the Japanese occupational regime and so I was really interested to see what happens with realism in North Korea and how what what is realism when it is also couched in this kind of fantastical imaginical uh, imaginative mode so uh, one of the novellas looks at this group of youth that uh, go uh, to 
to Mars and learn about the Martians and their sort of utopian society. And interestingly, mm. the reason that Mars, they discovered, you know, was abandoned was because of uh, the over-exploitation of natural resources. Wow. So it's this kind of really interesting environmental statement hmm. in this North Korean uh, novella. It. Yeah, from, from the 1960s. Of course, then the novella sort of ends and there's a shift and they say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're also kind of, we have this, uh, you know, we're entering this period where we have these sort of limited resources. However, we have found, oh, oh, the Martians say, we have found a new virgin land that is really waiting to be occupied by people, so we're going to go there. So it mm -hmm. has a little bit of a kind of, a, a, let's say, ambivalent, uh, in, from my perspective, ending. But it's just mm. really, interesting. really interesting. Now, how does North Korean, how does children's literature in North Korea work to shape young minds and instill ideologies and a certain worldview? Well, I mean, I think children's literature in many places uh, have a strong kind of didactic, mm. uh, right, um, uh, impulse. Not everything and not all, uh, not all materials for children are like that. There are also a lot of uh, very edgy you know, writers in, in many places. And in North Korea, maybe a little bit predictably, I mean, I think I was looking in the 50s, especially in the 60s, for something that was, you know, maybe more nuanced, maybe some possibility for imagination. And I think I did find some of those glimmers of, of possibilities. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I would say, especially from the sort of really uh, firm establishment of Zutasang and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, once you get into the 80s and 90s, it all becomes you know, a little a little bit predictable, uh, right. you know. And uh, and so, how do they uh, form and, and shape uh, young thinkers? Well, you know, through uh, there's images, there's the the kind of the, the plot lines, and you know, vilification of the usual suspects. Yeah, uh, Americans, Japanese, and venal South Koreans. Yeah, yeah. So so it becomes to me, I'm really interested in the 50s and 60s. I think right up until the 70s, it's still a period of a lot of really interesting variation and nuance and um, and discussion. That those two decades are full of really interesting materials. So there, uh, all of that is now, uh, since the 2007, since I was in the Library of Congress, now mm -hmm. uh, most of that material, or uh, much of it is yeah, digitized. digitized yeah. And now we jump forward to your most recent published article, a North Korea's translation of Anne Frank and the Policies of Politics of Self-Writing, published in April 2023 in the Journal of the Association for Jewish Studies. What drew you to this? So... This was, again, a mistake uh, or an accident. I say not a mistake. It was an accident. I was looking for science fiction and was uh, looking, leafing through Adong Munak in the early 2000s. Uh, any science fiction that I could find, I was trying to kind of get a sense from the 50s until the, the, the mid-2000s what had changed about science fiction. And my eye, you know, went down the page and mm -hmm. there was Anne Frank and it was actually, I think it was episode 12. So it means I missed 12 episodes because ah. I wasn't looking for it. Anyway, right. so I went back. So it was a serialization. It was a serialization yep. uh, between 2002 2004 and so when i discovered oh, a this two year long serial that's quite a long one yeah. it was yeah it was serialized over uh over two years mm -hmm. and so i went back and read it uh, cover to cover actually that's not exactly true i i went back found all the episodes photocopied them mm -hmm. and then put them on my desk and if you've ever, you know one day when you visit my my desk at stanford you'll see what a big mess it is ah. i had sort of forgotten about it right and then in 2019 i was on my way to sweden for a children's literature conference and the layover from san francisco was in amsterdam and i thought okay this yeah. is uh, you know Anne is calling to me i'm going to go and stay at the you know at a place right near the clock that she heard every day i mm -hmm. read i read Anne frank uh, very carefully was completely swept up by her incredibly unique voice and 
So I went to Amsterdam 2019, stayed close to the clock tower, went to Anne Frank's house, spoke to the director of the Anne Frank Museum, mm -hmm. and told them about the North Korean translation. At that point, I'd started reading it. Yeah. And so then he clued me into a very interesting program, which I, I don't know if you've had a chance to see right, it. Yeah, I did watch it uh, last week. Yes, you could find it on YouTube. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Keep going. Fantastic. Yeah. So he said, by the way, we had, you know, there was a Dutch journalist who went to Korea in 2004 and interviewed North Korean children yep. with the diary in their hands. And I thought, oh my goodness, how, how have I Miss yeah, so, how'd you miss that? Yeah. So all the different pieces started coming uh, together. So in the end of the day, what I had was I, I read the serialized version, 2000 to 2004. I read it alongside what I thought was, see, the, the, the translator never said what he, never mentioned the original that he was reading. It mm. turns out, I thought it was the English version, but then it turns out that it was the German. Uh -huh. So after I did this close reading of the English and the Korean to see thinking that the English version may have been the original mm. and kind of marking out what places uh, he diverged and, you know, f trying to track down his notes and his, his interjections. Yep. Then I had to go to the German and kind of track those same differences down and see if the things that I thought that were different about the North Korean version, maybe they were there all the, uh, you right, know, the whole the time in German. Yeah. So I had to do this whole kind of backward sleuthing. Yeah. So I did that. At the same time, I was, you know, of course, watched this really interesting, uh, this fascinating documentary, which is in Korean and in Dutch. Yeah. So I so I have a wonderful colleague at Stanford who is a Dutch speaker. There are actually not that many at Stanford, as I learned. I can imagine. <laughs> so, you know, I, I paid her in, uh, in in chocolate and in wine, and she, uh, mm. you know, she, she went through the documentary and helped me uh, understand some of the subtitles, the Dutch subtitles or the, the journalist's kind of commentary. And so I was able to put this, uh, put this together. So this came together in this article. And as well as the serialized edition that you mentioned, there was also a, uh, a published edition of the book that came out all at once, but it seems like it was by the same translator. Have you got any idea how two very similar versions of translations appeared almost simultaneously? You know, I really don't. I uh, suspect that, uh, so the, the, the single volume put out by the, uh, it was a textbook version. Mm -hmm. And I'm now forgetting the publisher. I can look this up, but it was, you know, some kind of... Something like Pyongyang Educational Publisher. Uh, yeah, or something yeah. like that. So it came out in one volume. You know, what's, what's interesting, Jaco, is mm -hmm. that now when I meet defectors, uh, escapees that have escaped perhaps within the last um, 10 or 20 years, the last few years, there have been very few, but I asked them, do you know, you know, did you read, right. you know, Anne Frank's diary? Do you know what Anne Frank's diary? And how many and of them have? Almost none. Ah. So I suspect that this was very much uh, maybe uh, short-lived, mm. maybe focused in Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. And uh, in any case, every South Korean knows what and, you know, what Anne Frank's diary is right. and has read some version of it. Mm -hmm. The North Korean defectors that I've met to a person, no one has said that they mm. have read it. So um, so it was interesting. I, you know, so then I thought, I mean, it, it says something about, you know, as scholars of literature, you know, we read uh, the materials that North Korea publishes and we like to think about, you know, what is the world that is being imagined through these materials and how... How then, one step further, do they shape their readers? When you, you know, the, one of the challenges of doing research on North Korea is it's very hard to get a sense of that reader reception side. Mm. And so when I try and, you know, when I actually do get to speak to defectors and ask them these questions and they say, well, actually, I never read it, that causes me, you know, it, may, it makes me pause and think, you know, where is this a Pyongyang thing? Was it only right. a short-lived, you know, uh, endeavor? 
So in any case, there you have it. Uh, what was the first thing that struck you as interesting about the, the translation? Was it the fact that there were divergences from the text or simply the fact that it existed? I think the fact that it existed first caught my eye. Mm. You know, I think those of us who study North Korean literature, one of the, the interesting questions for us is always the place of world literature in North yeah. Korea. Of course, right, North Korea publishes global or what we call world literature in a selective way. So that in and of itself maybe should not have surprised me so much. But, you know, I was just really fascinated by this, the existence of a text that, you know, I'm Jewish and actually Anne Anne was born in 1929. My Korean mother-in-law passed away. She was born in 1929. Mm. And, you know, and and I was just sort of really drawn uh, by, by this story and also thinking about this text as a seminal text for me as a you know as a as a as a Jew and as you know and as someone who has you know ties of course to families uh, who perished in the Holocaust and so I was just you know just fascinated by its existence yeah. and then as I read on Anne has this incredibly powerful voice where you know one of the things that she does so well is she she puts forward these very emphatic questions questions about what does it mean to be human? Where does evil come from? Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, with all of these, uh, you know, with, with, with so much evil in the world, how do we get up in the morning and be better people and fix the world and do what we can? So she has these, this really, you know, it's a teenage voice, but it's so, it's just uh, so heartfelt. Yeah. And so I really connected with that. And I was c- curious to see, you know, what it was that the the North Koreans assigned it. But, you know, I have to say one more thing, which is that I started this research in 2019. Well, mm-hmm. in 2020, of course, we all know we all shut down. Yeah. And I was writing this article as I was in quarantine in my house. And so at some point, ah. I remember reading Anne and thinking, this is a story about quarantine. Mm. With, of course, one difference, which is in Anne's case, if they were to be discovered, they would all be, you know, they would be sent to Auschwitz. But it's so much of the drama... The everyday kind of tedium of, you know, mm. trying to get exercise in a small space and making the best of the kind of food without having, you know, being able to go out. This was all of a sudden it became a quarantine story for yeah. me. So that was another way that it became very familiar. I can say a couple of words about my most moving moments or my, what I was most excited mm. about uh, this article and, and uh, sort of my, my findings. So, I mean, first, it was just a really interesting process of trying to see where the translator was uh, interjecting and where the translator felt like uh, he needed to intervene. And there was mm. one moment in particular that stood out to me where Anne uses this word, uh, as, as actually the, the Korean translation of, you know, she said something about her, uh, her, her personality as sometimes being a little kind of off the cuff, or I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but the translator translated it uh, using the word uh, cynicism. She's mm. cynical. And then he put a parenthesis inside the text and yeah. said, dear readers, you know, this is not a, you know, this is not a kind of behavior that we condone. You know, this is something you need to be aware of. Right. So that was this one really clear moment in which the uh, translator tried to intervene. And I talk in the article about other places where the translator does what translations often do, which is uh, domesticate the text. Yep. In other words, right, using words that, you know, Anne herself 
you know, use the words, you know, German or, uh, or, you know, the daily, the day laborers or, you know, words like that, that she was using. And then the translator really domesticated. So the Germans all became these, uh, right, the, the fascist uh, bastards. Mm. And the uh, people that were out for work were the Nudungjan. So yeah. it kind of domesticated it in this way. So that, uh, that was uh, also really interesting. And outside the, uh, the parenthetical uh, interjections that you just mentioned, North Korea, normally when it publishes a translation of a foreign text. It gives a kind of a framework introduction at the beginning to sort of frame it so that their readers don't get any wrong ideas or aren't tainted by capitalist notions or whatever. And there's a bit, I think, that you quote in your paper here saying that the, uh, the text has its limits. It is written by a teenager with a capitalist education. We should be critical of the way she hung her hopes on the conniving forces of the U.S. and England of her insufficient participation in the struggle of her religious immersion and of her precocious and inappropriate thoughts about love. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that, yeah. that framing? Yeah, well, the framing, of course, right, that is the place where the, the translator uh, uh, states under no uncertain terms how this text needs to be read. I, however, think that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how effective these uh, introductions are because I feel like, you know, they right the translator says it and he warns the readers and says, you know, be careful, of course, she's full of, your head is full of romance and that's bad. It's capitalist and bourgeois. Mm. But, you know, these are, um, especially in the case of the serialized version, I think it was 14 episodes. Uh, and so the framing comes w- before the episode number one. Well, guess what? Episode 14 is many, many months later. Much well, more than a year, isn't it? Yeah. Much more than a year. And so a reader who maybe not, would not have read the first episode doesn't know that they really shouldn't be, you know, that they have to beware, be, you know, wary of mm. uh, uh, thinking, you know, of, of falling in the trap of Anne's charms and right. kind of thinking about bourgeois love in that way. So that, That's a risk of serializing something. If you're not always publishing that, uh, that translatory framework, then you're going to miss somebody might miss out. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think one of the, you know, one of the ways I try and explain this text or when I want readers to come away uh, from thinking about North Korean literature, in particular a text like this, is that, you know, I believe that as much as, of course, there's no question that the state tries to uh, shape responses and to, you know, only publishes materials that it wants to publish and it's safe to publish, uh, right? We, we all know that. Mm. I think that there is, uh, there are interesting ways in which people can read text and respond to text that no state will ever be able to limit. So, mm. you know, in this case, in the case of this text, I thought a couple of takeaways for me about Anne Frank, the translation, it comes out in the early 2000s. And in the early 2000s, remember, uh, North Korea is coming out of a uh, terrible famine. Mm. And, you know, as we know from all the wonderful research that our colleagues have done, uh, you know, this is uh, a famine that, you know, was North Korean people suffered a great deal. But also, you know, it was very hard to talk about uh, the suffering uh, from the famine. And so they were, uh, you know, there were were restrictions, there were restrictions on the way they they could talk about famine. And also, um, just there was a shortage of, uh, of, of resources. And I think this text speaks to that. So do you think that it might give a way for the Korean readers to process some of the negative experiences of the arduous march in the same way perhaps that South Korean literature about the Vietnam War helped them to process stuff about the Korean War? 
I think so. I mean, I think that this text is, um, it, you know, among all the many things that it does. Mm. I mean, yes, there's all this, right? There's material about the suffering is caused by the caused by the fascists, right? The fascist bastards. So it's very much a text that recognizes the suffering of Anne, asks North Koreans to see themselves as Anne. In fact, it dilutes all the Jewish material. So mm. every time, right, Anne speaks about we the Jews, she uses we the Jews have done all, uh, you know, have undergone all the suffering and we the Jews alone understand. And this Korean text, the North Korean text really takes all of that out. It hardly uses the term Jews. In fact, I find a couple of very interesting kind of strange places in the text where the, the translator really doesn't un- know very much about Judaism, right. doesn't understand what it means to be Jewish. So it takes out a lot of the Jewish content and makes it about our Udi suffering, mm-hmm. our suffering, our, right, the, the, the fact that we're stretched for resources. So it's a text about resilience, uh, about how to be resilient, about a, a character like Anne who is making the most of her situation, who is, you know, uh, has a strong spirit, whose suffering is caused by outside forces, much like the North Korean readers are being asked to think of themselves as victims of this axis of evil. Right, um, the, the famine of, is somehow caused by the Americans and, and, and America's allies, Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So uh, so I think it's a, a kind of a text that uh, is asking North Koreans to see kind of a model of resilience in Anne. One more thing that I thought was really interesting for me to think about is this um, culture of Sengwal Chunghwa. Ah, you've preempted my next question. Yes, so <laughs> let me just ask the question so that to, to frame it. So you link Anne Frank's diary to North Korean self-criticism diaries and sessions the so-called Sengwal Chonghwa. So tell us about that. This is something I'm really interested in, and it's uh, hard to get information on because... Um, it is, because you know, even those books, those blank notebooks, uh, they sell them at the department store that all foreign tourists are taken to, and that is the one item in the department store that has a little sticker underneath that says, not for sale to foreigners. These are blank notebooks. It's really interesting. So when I've asked North Korean defectors about their experience with Sengwal Chonghwa, yeah. many of them have confirmed to me that it's a kind of... Uh, pre-scripted sort of process where you know you go to your meeting and some describe this process of you know they decide in advance okay I'll write about this you write about that mm-hmm. and uh, so you know th- this is uh, so for, for listeners who don't know this Hengwa Chunghwa is the process by way this kind of self um, criticism sessions where you're supposed to write uh, you know, it's kind of a reflection, but you're supposed to actually name either right wrongdoings on your behalf or on others, and you know, sort of really come clean. It's kind of like an opportunity to for everyone to admit that they are, you know, they're they're always it's you're always on a on a in a process of self improvement. Mm, uh, they and have that, they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Kim. And and uh, they have to make that public and uh, and circulate it. And so you know, so I've I've heard such. Uh, I mean, it's it's amusing now. Of course, I'm sure it's not so fun to go through it. But no. uh, yeah, the sort of uh, ha- having to write this and having to find something. You know, you don't always have something to write, so you really have to work hard to try and find something to write. So I was thinking about that too when I was reading about mm. Anne because Anne has this to me is a, such a familiar kind of teenage angst and right she goes through you know she she enters and it comes out on the other end she's she goes through puberty while she's in the annex and uh she's just full of emotion and uh trying to think about herself and her family and these people are stuck together uh in in small rooms and you know they're they're afraid of being found out and and so she's constantly thinking about uh, she's very critical of herself uh critical of herself and you know writing about her her thoughts and and so I thought, huh, I wonder if there's something here to 
that the North Korean translator found really interesting. And again, mm. a kind of a model of self-reflection and oh, self-flagellation yeah. that may be also kind of resonate mm -hmm. with North Korean readers. When you talk to North Korean escapees and refugees about their experience of, of writing the Singhwa Chonga, did you meet any people who actually said that, that they wrote sort of a, an unadulterated, completely honest diary, or was it always very uh, a curated book? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, this is a really interesting question, and it one that, it's a thread that I'm trying to follow now in my next, my, my upcoming kind of uh, uh, research interests. But, you know, when there is an audience, when mm -hmm. there is a clear prescripted audience for these kinds of writings, I mean, to uh, let's just say that, uh, defectors, escapees that have shared their experience with me, with me, they did not make it sound like this was some kind of authentic, you know, great piece of writing. They knew they had to do it. In fact, many times they didn't have very much to write, and so they had to kind of come up with things and also have agreements with friends about what they would write about each other. So it's a kind of, you know, kind of process that you go through and seemed that it was quite hollow uh, from what they were telling me. I'm curious now suddenly whether you ever met a North Korean who kept a, a sort of a double set of books, you know, like a, like a company has the books that they show to the, uh, the IRS and then the set of books that are the real ones for inside. Did, did you meet any North Koreans who had their own real diary, but then they kept the Sengwal Chonga for the public audience? Yeah, that's a really interesting question uh, and one that I, I haven't really asked. I mean, I, I think that the, uh, my sense, and Jacqueline, you, you probably know better than me, but my sense is that the state has a uh, quite profound penetration into people's personal lives. Mm. Good friend um, of ours, uh, uh, Andre Abrahamian, mm. you know, he describes uh, North Korean society as a very low trust uh, society, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think that when you're you're constantly having to kind of show all of your cards and really um, have very very little space that's protected from the state. Uh, I, I imagine it's uh, something that can really wear uh, on you for a long time. So. The question for me that I'm really interested in pursuing, particularly when it comes to um, escapees, defectors who come to South Korea and then end up writing their life story for an international audience, mm -hmm. I'm always interested in how audience and their experiences post-defection, how that has really shaped the way they tell their story. Mm. Not to say that, you know, there's fabrication or to, you know, point fingers or, you know, I'm, I, I'm not so interested in that, but I do... I think that there's a lot um, to be learned from reading North Korean memoirs, not as nonfiction, not as some kind of primary materials, documents, but as fiction. Fiction in the sense that they're connecting dots, also thinking about uh, the reader's uh, perspective, but they're connecting dots in their lives, you know, post-escape. Uh, and I'm really curious as to what writing, how would they write about their life and about their journey would look like if they didn't have that that audience. And so I'm a li I, I'm I'm on the kind of trail of trying mm -hmm. to figure that out right now. Without trying to tell you how to do your job as an academic, uh, when you say suggest that these works should be read as fiction, you know, it, I think th there's a risk there that we we take North Korean defectors' accounts then as being you know fabulations cut from whole cloth. And I wonder whether the term curated narrative or curated nonfiction might be uh, more to the point. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I make a point in my article as well to say I'm not, or I don't know if it's in the article, but whenever I give a presentation, I say, you know, my, my point is not to cast out on the, you know, the, the details of, of defectors' uh, lives as they mm. tell them. But rather, you know, I, I look to the uh, large body of uh, scholarship on, on uh, self-writing, on autobiographies. Mm-hmm. And I think when we, you know, what I'm trying to do uh, in, in now in my future uh, work is to kind of place this defector narrative uh, genre within kind of a broader body of work of mm. self-writing and autobiography. And think about what can we learn if we sort of broaden these, or we ask a little bit of a different kind of question. Again, not in order to cast doubt, right. but in order to think about how we tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to come back to Anne, my starting point for this uh, question was when I learned that Anne Frank's diary, as we know it, was actually written several times. Anne rewrote her own diary. Mm. She was in the annex. She wrote a notebook. She filled it up. She filled up a lot of loose paper. And then her father was the only one who survived Auschwitz, so one of the of the eight, the only one of the eight that were in uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the annex. He uh, then uh, went and he did some work on 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 the diary because he was, you know, he was he he, he was trying to protect his his family, and uh, I mean, he had his, his own his own good reasons. But the more to the point, Anne herself rewrote her her diary. As she was in the annex, she wrote first, to, you know, for, about her love for Peter, and then she 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 edited mm-hmm. her own work. So I think you know the question of audience is always always there, um, and there's something right. I find really interesting. Right. So th- th- there's the difference between uh, a diary, well, an account of something where you write a little bit each day and then kind of don't edit that, and then that that's on the one hand, and on the other hand, an account where you write something looking back after a period of maybe months or years on a whole range of things that happened, but now you have this perspective of where you're standing now. And so exactly. that's, the, you know, as a, that's that, the, the difference between a primary document and a, and a secondary source document in, in historical terms, right? Right, right. And so I think that I'm, uh, I'm not quite sure today. I mean, I think we have far fewer uh, defector memoirs that have been published in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure what the status of those are, but uh, I'm always wary when... You know, defector memoirs are touted as a kind of primary resource where we can then, you know, gather or, you know, gain information about all kinds of things. I think because I'm a, you know, I'm interested in fiction, I want, I want to resist that temptation and think more about what does it mean to write one story in hindsight, mm-hmm. you know, with this kind of new awareness of audience and particularly the way that defector narratives do find their ways into English and into kind of the um, the uh, the market overseas. I mm. think it's uh, something that is very interesting to think about. Now, coming back to the book, how do issues of ethnic identity and racial purity, something that the Nazis were certainly fixated on, and so in turn is uh, the DPRK state ideology, how do these issues come together in this translation of Anne Frank's diary? Well, you know, I think that one of the big surprises for me, and I think I said this before too, is how much of the kind of Jewish content was really excised from this. So uh, whenever possible, uh, the uh, translator really does take out any kind of reference to Jews and being Jewish and always right, kind of puts front and center the uh, fascist bastards that are responsible for this. But when it comes to kind of the, the persecution of the Jews, the, the sense here is that he's really uh, not so interested, nor is he very familiar mm-hmm. with what that means. And there are a couple of places, a couple of hints of that. I mean, there was one really strange mistranslation early on 
where he writes that something about, you know, well, we're, we're not, she, he actually uses this, this phrase, we are not Jewish, but, you know, and, and, mm. and that, so that was totally weird. weird. But he also transliterates some Jewish holidays uh, in the wrong way. So I don't think he's, he ever, you know, you know, not surprisingly had a chance to speak to, um, you know, anyone who was Jewish who'd be yeah. able to tell them, you know, how to say Hanukkah or, you know, something like that. Now, from the uh, the Dutch documentary uh, from 2004 that you mentioned earlier, and as well as I think a uh, a published reader's letter, what evidence were you able to find about how this translation was received by its young North Korean readers? Yeah, so I'll talk first about the uh, the published letter from the reader. Uh, that that was really interesting because I think it was published. Did I say it was published in the fifth issue? I don't remember. It was published pretty early on, mm. uh, and this is a, a letter from a reader that uh, bemoans the the eventual right the the, the fact that Anne was uh, was eventually murdered by the Nazis. And I thought, well, that's a spoiler if you put it in the fifth right. issue. So uh, right, part part five out of fourteen. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that was kind of the question first for me was. Why was it published then? Uh, maybe it didn't particularly matter, uh, you know, that readers or, you know, maybe it was obvious from the beginning that this, you know, was going towards them. But I, I thought it was interesting. But the letter from the, to, to the editor uh, that was published, the reader's uh, letter, made it very clear that the the reader was reading it exactly as uh, it should be read. It, the reader expresses mm. right uh, their anger at uh, the the fascists that have created the situation and they're to blame for and suffering and uh, uses it as a kind of battle cry to stand up and fight. So I thought that that was uh, pretty. It was interesting, but it it seemed um, quite predictable. The Documentary is very, very interesting mm. uh, because you know first of all you you know you have to imagine that uh, there are a, there are Dutch journalists with big cameras that yep. are in a school. And Which has probably been selected by the North Korean state. Probably been selected by the North Korean state. And, you know, one of the big uh, disappointments for me when I finally was able to get in touch with uh, uh, Mariam Bartz, Bartelsman, the director, I, don't, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, but uh, we finally, I got her uh, on email. I wanted to Zoom with her. And she said, look, all of that material was a long time ago, and it was, it's all been destroyed, all of the footage. So, so there's no footage. I, I really wanted to see... No raw footage. That's whatever footage there you know, was left to see if there's stuff that was on camera that mm. didn't end up, you know, that ended up on the editing floor. So unfortunately, right. I wasn't able to get my hands on that. But what's really interesting, and I, I, maybe I wasn't able to do it so much in this article, but I've done it in presentations. Mm -hmm. If you look at the interviews, you know, you see the children trying to answer questions the right way. Mm -hmm. And the way that you see that is they'll answer a question and then sometimes they'll pause and make sure that they've said the right word, or this one boy says, you know, and then he then he corrects himself and he says, you know, what was the word? It was uh, he, he used some kind of you know uh, derogatory. Something with norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he he didn't say the norm the first time around, so he says it the second time around. And so there are sort of moments where you say, oh, where you can see that the children are they're reaching for words, but they're they're reaching for words that they are. Prescripted to a certain mm -hmm. uh, certain extent. But well, and then, there are also moments, as I recall, where the teacher leans in and, and kind of whispers to the child, "This is what you should say." Exactly. So then you that that was caught on camera. Super fascinating, yeah. right? Moments where the teacher kind of has to lean in and intervene and say, "No, this is how you you answer the question." Yeah. But then there are also there's this one moment where you know there's this there was this boy who cracked a smile at some point. And you know it was very small and it was very fleeting, but you can kind of get a glimmer 
of, you know, what it's like to, you know, you, it's really familiar to, to all of us who go to school and, you know, we have to answer a question. And then, you know, there are these moments that kind of escape, even escape these kind of prescripted uh, moments. So, yeah, I think that uh, the, the, the documentary, you also have to, you know, th- I mean, it's, it's really interesting to watch and to think about how so much of that is scripted and how awkward it must be also. And, and Jekko, as you said, you know, it's a school that's been chosen. Yeah. Everything's been kind of, you know, prearranged and, you know, how awkward it must be for them to answer in a kind of authentic way when there's this big wagon with a big camera yep. right in their face. So that also you kind of need to think about, you know, take it, yeah. Right. But also, I mean, uh, have you ever been to North Korea? I have not. Ah, So when when you go as a tourist, it's quite common to be taken to a school to meet with, you know, spontaneously meet with a group of English uh, students of English who are, uh, you know, doing an English class. And we're often taken into into a room and suddenly we're having these conversations with children in English. And and I think those kids have been visited umpteen times by, uh, by foreigners before. So it's very likely this was one of those schools in or near Pyongyang. They've probably seen foreigners before, maybe without the big cameras, admittedly. Uh, but I, I think they're somewhat familiar with and have been trained on how to answer foreigners' questions. Right. And, you know, there was this one part of the documentary where the teacher takes the time to talk to children about romance and mm-hmm. about how, you know, there are all these romantic uh, sections in Anne Frank, as much as the translator tried to take, and he did excise part of it, mm-hmm. but some of the romance stayed in, even in the translation. And so to me, it was really interesting that the teacher made a point of talking to the class about this and say, remember, right, do we do we have romance in the classroom? No, we only have, you know, we only have, you know, we love the leader and right. we, you know, love... Love uh, for comrades. comrades, yeah, and uh, you know that's love for comrades is the favorite song. Uh, right. The fact that the teacher feels like she needs to intervene to yeah. me is interesting. Uh, what uh, for you then is the big takeaway message from looking at this book and its translation? So I think, first of all, that uh, as someone who you know, as you pointed out, Jacko, I've I myself have not been to North Korea, and uh, you know, I there 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 are kind of complicated reasons for that, but uh, um, I haven't traveled. I access. North Korea, particularly, I mostly do research on the 50s and, and 60s. So that's a place that even if I wanted to, I couldn't travel right. uh, unless one of these science fictional yeah, time, time, machine. time machines uh, work out. But uh, I, the, the, the North Korea that I access through fiction, uh, through literature more generally, is one that I'm really interested in uh, holding up and thinking about as a counterpoint to uh, what we know or, you know, the, the kind of research that we do on, uh, on the history of North Korea. So I think that fiction and history have a really uh, interesting relationship. Mm. And rather than trying to see how fiction, right, how it matches up or how it uh, confirms a historical reality, I'm always, I mean, interested in what literature can tell us that is not is missing from from the historical documents, right? And how it may challenge the way that we think about uh, about North Korea, either uh, you know, in in, in the, during the Cold War uh, and today. And so I think with Anne Frank, um, a few takeaway messages for me. I mean, the first is to think about what the experience of Famine and you know and and this kind of state of of a lack of resources. Why why a text like this would speak to to readers? Uh, you know, why would the translator think that this text is really important to children at the time? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And so kind of to try and extrapolate from that and think about North Koreans reading this in the, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but also I like to kind of try and frame this text, again, within broader kind of questions that we ask ourselves in literature. What is self-writing? How do we understand this particular memoir, let's say within either memoirs of defectors or memoirs more generally? Mm-hmm. What is self-writing? How do we tell our stories when there is an audience? When there's, is there such a thing as telling one story without an audience? Is right. there a way of extracting the politics uh, from uh, from the self in, in this way? So I think I'm always trying to bring North Korea into, you know, out of its sort of, you know, exceptionalism, isolation, and mm-hmm. try and understand it more broadly within uh, broader kind of frames that we think about as uh, scholars of literature. Are there any ways in which this uh, North Korean translation of Anne Frank's diary threatens to break out of the ideological boundaries that the North Korean state places upon writing? So, I mean, there's this uh, one moment in the text, which um, I will see if I can try and find. But to me, it was this extraordinary moment. So one of the really magical things about Anne is that she really believes in the power of the conscience, the the, the conscience that we all Mm. have as humans, that, you know, we have as humans, we have the ability and the responsibility for getting up every morning and making the world a better place. And she says that, and the Korean translator kept it. Hmm. Um, And so there's this really powerful moment that I think, you know, if you can, uh, you know, as a reader, if you can sort of think about this text or think about this moment in which she says, you know, these things about, you know, what does it mean to start each day and think about how do I make the world a better place? If you reader can do this, then think about what world we would be living in. And I, and I find that, that that's the moment where she is speaking to the individual North Korean reader who may take something away from that and sort of have that protected inner space and have that moment of reflection. I thought that was really powerful. So are you suggesting that as a kind of a separating the individual from the North Korean state collective? Yeah, or maybe a moment in which, you know, it talked a little bit before about how the state penetrates, Mm. uh, right? It it has such a profound penetration into every aspect of life in North Korea. And so when I read this one section, I thought, oh, this is really, uh, perhaps this is a moment. I mean, it's hard to know, right, if Mm. a reader would just skim over it. Or, you know, or if readers, you know, are not even reading anymore, I don't know. But, Mm. you know, if, if there was a reader in 2002 that picked up this book, because we know it was published and we know that someone read it, mm. um, even if they haven't read it in the last 20 years, and read this one section, would they then, you know, would that stay? It certainly stayed with me. Would this moment stay with them and think about, well, you know, is that this is the place that I have that's protected, that's mine. And what does it mean for me to have that inner space and really use it for good? So I, I like to think that that's kind of a, you know, a moment that perhaps we can read into it as a kind of some kind of protected space. Something to hope for. Uh, What are you working on next and and how does it relate to North Korea? Yeah, so I uh, am quite interested in thinking a little bit more about different ways of writing about defector narratives. Mm. Um, And so I'm hoping to be able to do more work on that. And I've got some exciting leads, but I don't want to give anything away in case it doesn't work out. Maybe I'll tell you after the podcast. Yeah, (laughs) I've got some questions for you off, off the record. 
Mexico to uh, what's the timeline that we're looking at for your next thing then? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've got uh, so I am actually have a chapter right now which uh, I thought that it would be an article, but it, I actually think it might end up being part of a longer uh, a larger book. So I have a chapter on the DMZ. I was very excited mm. to hear your podcast about the DMZ. Really enjoyed our field trip. Yeah, yeah, enjoyed that field trip. I uh, uh, some years ago. Uh, picked up all these books about the DMZ that have been published in South Korea and started to think about how space is translated uh, for young readers, mm-hmm. something that's quite a new, uh, the DMZ in, in a, as, a, as a space uh, that is featured in, uh, in young readers' uh, books, something quite new. So I have, uh, I have a chapter that's, come, that's, that's almost done about that. I've been working. I'm I'm sort of all over the place. I uh, I have a you know I published a few years ago another article about science. I published a, an article recently about children's songs, Dongyo, from mm-hmm. the early 20th century. I have this book on the uh, this chapter on the DMZ, and now I'm working on defector narratives. So what I'm trying to do right now is to bring all of those together to one overarching ah. uh, big question about uh, form and content. So hopefully that'll. You know, that'll uh, work out uh, in the next couple of years. You've certainly got your work cut out for you. Well, thank you very much once again, Daphne Zor, Associate Professor in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at Stanford University. Thanks for coming on the show. You can find her on Twitter at Daphne Zor. Thanks, as always, to Brian Betts and Darius Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, coughing, etc. Thank you very much. Listen again next time. Mm-hmm.